you're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, this is Eric Larson, and you're listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Epic Marvel Podcast. This is Amazing Spider-Man, episode number 21, covering a period of Spider-Man from 1991 to 1992. My name is Curtis Findlay. I'm your host. And I'm Adam. Adam Chapman. Uh, if you're just joining us, yeah, we're, we're doing the Spider-Man episodes all out of order because this is the Epic Collection podcast. And since the Epic Collections are out of order, so so are our episodes. Um, I think the last episode we did was Ghost of the Past. Oh my god, has it been that long since we've talked Spider-Man on this podcast? I think so. I think so. Because last time we talked about Daredevil. And so yeah, it, right, it has yeah. been a while. Uh, so we're jumping Ooh. back uh, into the 90s. I would have to say you should go and listen to our other episode, Cosmic Adventures, uh, because that's the volume that comes, that's the episode that comes directly before this one. So you can get up to speed with the events of Spider-Man. If you haven't listened to that episode, Adam, what are the things that we need to know going into this episode here about Spider-Man and where he is in the 90s here? So this is a relatively simple volume to jump into. There's not a lot of confusing continuity to jump into. You have Peter and Mary Jane, they're married. Uh, they're relatively happy. Uh, you do have in the not too distant future, or sorry, past, I should say, in the two years previous, uh, Mary Jane had had some uh, instances with a man who was kind of trying to uh, abduct her and kidnap her and keep him all for his, himself, uh, Jonathan Caesar. Uh, you also have a prior uh, relationship with Black Cat, with uh, Spider-Man kind of rearing its ugly head as Felicia uh, Hardy is dating Flash Thompson to try and kind of get his goat and make him uh, feel very uncomfortable and, and jealous. Uh, you also have um, Nathan Lubensky as uh, a man who's living with Aunt May. Uh, originally was in her boarding house, and now they're engaged to get married. He's another elderly gentleman, so we got those two elderly people are enjoying each other's company in the way that only they can. And that's kind of it. I mean, there's not a lot you really else you really need to know going in. Venom's on the periphery. He's a, he's thought to be dead, or at least the symbiote's thought to be dead, and Eddie Brock's in prison. But besides that, it's, it's relatively simple and easy to get into. Michelani kind of gives you everything you need in each issue. Uh, even with the stuff that's gone on in the past, he gives you a lot of exposition to kind of explain it. So it's not too difficult to jump into. Yeah, I think you rounded it out pretty nicely. Uh, maybe the the only thing you need to know is that Sandman has uh, been on the reform as well. Like he's uh, made a turn for on to the good side and has been trying. I mean, they, he explains that in in the in the story as well. So yeah, this really is a good volume to jump into, and that's kind of what I like about David McLeany in general is that he really writes. In, the, in a way that um, there, there are definitely kind of soap opera subplots that, that carry through. But you can jump in at any point in his long run on Amazing Spider-Man and just kind of jump right in and, and do a good job and, and be fine in your reading experience. Absolutely. And I think a part of that is the artist he gets to work with. I mean, he 
he kind of knows what he's doing. He, he he's a vet, but here he's definitely playing to the strengths of his artists, um, or at least it appears to be. Um, and in terms of this plot not being maybe too difficult, there's a lot of action. It moves really quickly, so that it makes the story the story is a lot more enjoyable. They're not getting too bogged down in his words, and he's just kind of letting the art tell the story without kind of trying to have too much on the page, which is pretty important. You know, there's not too much word placement. There's not too much kind of overabundance of words. It's kind of crowding out the artwork. It's actually kind of the opposite. He really lets his artists uh, shine, and he's got some great artists he's working with. In this particular volume, obviously, we have, um, at least on Amazing Spider-Man proper, uh, he's working with Eric Larson, and he's working with Mark Bagley, two great artists, so why not let them tell the story? Exactly, yeah, and they're both great at it. Um, I got a chance to talk with Eric Larson recently, and so I'll scatter some interview clips from uh, from the interview with him into this episode, so hopefully you'll enjoy those little tidbits there. Um, otherwise, Adam, tell me, what what issues are we talking about in this episode? So, I mean, this epic collection starts with Spider-Man Spirits of the Earth, which is, I guess, an original graphic novel at the time, um, which I don't remember reading originally. I think it, it was probably with this epic collection where I finally actually read it. And then it has issues of Amazing Spider-Man 334 to 350. And it, it ends with Eric Larson's end on Spider-Man. So it's kind of a nice finish. It's an actual, um, a good stopping point for this volume, I think. Absolutely. It's extremely natural. It makes sense narratively. Um, it, it just feels right. And then you go to the next issue, it definitely feels like it was the right spot because you start something completely new. Yeah, yeah. Well, new writer even, yeah. Before we move on to the issues, I want to talk a little bit about a Twitter poll that I put up. Uh, I asked the question, in the return of the Sinister Six epic collection, Doc Ock gets the band back together, but in Craven's absence, he recruits Hobgoblin. Which of these Spidey villains would have also made a good pick to round out the Sinister Six? And I tried to pick some villains who were maybe not in the spotlight, but were also sort of current around this time. I, I chose Cardiac, The Spot, Shocker, and Boomerang. So let me see here. The, the votes here are 0% for Cardiac, 5% <laughs> for The Spot, 27% for Boomerang, and a resounding win for Shocker with 68%. Really? Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I'm not surprised at that because Shocker is definitely kind of the coolest and most popular um, villain out of all of those four choices. So I'm kind of not surprised that he got the popular vote there. Um, however, you made a comment on Twitter, and I agree. In fact, I had the same, the exact same thing in mind um, with the, when I made those choices, and I wanted to see if people would come to the same conclusion of me or just vote for what was the coolest. So what did you say in the Twitter comment? Do you remember? Uh, uh, from what I recall, it was basically the idea that uh, the Shocker is not giving you that much different from a power set from, uh, from Electro, especially visually, um, whereas at least Boomerang would be. Uh, even the spot would be. Um, and then a Cardiac, not really a villain, so it doesn't really fit. Um, and then Spot's kind of loosey-goosey, not, not necessarily the best villain uh, to use, especially at this time. So I think Boomerang probably would have been a better fit, but not the Shocker, just because of the duplication factor. But I think I was just overthinking it. No, I think it's a good thought. The, the Boomerang's good because he's got some good arsenal, but I really think that I would choose the Spot because you have the teleportation, which none of the other villains in the Sinister Six can do. I think he would really come True. in useful in some sort of heist. 
Yeah, I think you're right. However, I, I guess part of my over over uh, thinking on this was again trying to think of who the character was at the time that would have been used as a as a good alternative to Hobgoblin. And based on the way that they had ever written Spot up until this point, I just didn't see it. Um, now I've read books like Supervillain Team Up, Modox Eleven, which is a fantastic use of the Spot during the Brand New Day era. There was a lot of great uses of the Spot. So I mean, my feelings on the Spot are kind of based on what time period we're talking about because you're right he's absolutely a better pick for any team uh, if he can be the guy who's kind of helping them get in and out and do that right uh, if you have a good writer and if you it's depending on which version of the character you're kind of using because again he's had to kind of a not not a pun intended but a spotty history in terms of who's written them. <laughs> yeah right okay so the other thing i want to mention here is that we have some facebook comments and uh, some really nice comments here, one from Josh and one from Frank. So I'm going to talk about Josh's here. He says about this volume, Charles Vess, amazing artist, always loved his covers and really enjoyed the Spirits of the Earth book. Almost felt like a BPRD Hellboy type story. And then he also says, Return of the Sinister Six. Michelini and Larson did their homework by including full splash panel pages with Spidey and a villain, and also the random minor guest stars, both of which evoke what Lee and Ditko did on Annual 1. Kudos for that, as well as just a fun superhero storyline. Well, except for Nathan dying, that wasn't fun. <laughs> so, yeah, I think he's spot on with those comments. Um, he, we, we can get into that more when we talk about the issues. Uh, and Frank says, very interesting to see the changes in Larson's work with the various inkers. I always felt that Randy Emberlin was the best inker for him as it gave more depth to his work. And that's something that if you listen to Cosmic Adventures, we actually talk about that. Uh, we, we talk about the different inkers over Larson, and I didn't, I wasn't a fan of Mike Mocklin uh, doing mm. his inks. And uh, there's actually kind of a funny clip from the Eric Larson interview about the different inkers, which um, I guess now's a good time to play that. So I'm going to do that just before we carry on with Frank's letter. Mike started on the on the book with me, kind of. It's like, you know, it's like Art, Art Nichols did my fill-in way earlier. Al Gordon inked my two kind of fill-in issues, 324, 327. Then Salakrup had suggested... Uh, now I'm blanking on the guy's name who did 329, but uh, he wasn't my choice. I wanted Macklin to do it. And then Macklin, once he was on the book, he had some uh, he had some deadline issues, and he was kind of ha- having a, a buddy of his help out. Oh yeah, those those pages looked just very different. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that. I think that's probably in the Punisher story. I, I noticed stuff like that. There was there were some pages there that were like, wait a minute, this isn't this isn't the same guy. <laughs> and, you know, he was swearing up and down. It, it was the same guy, but it's like, uh, you know, years later, I found out who it was. But <laughs> <laughs> at the time, you know, no, I swear to you, when I'm really fast, I ink like an entirely different human being. <laughs> <laughs> but then during the the by weekly stuff there there's a number of different guys uh terry austin inked a couple issues in there oh yeah that's right and those were super sweet yeah <laughs> and and then yeah that was when the handoff came over to to randy amberlin who stuck with it through the end of my run and then passed but there was a couple issues too where they just handed it out to any warm body in the office and so I got to have pages inked by Jack Abel and John Ramita Sr. And wow. 
whoever happened to be, you know, available at the time. So it's kind of neat. So Frank goes on to say, For me, this collection is pure fun from beginning to end, with Spirit of the Earth as a great addition with fantastic art. It's a very coherent collection compared to the previous and the next one, with one original graphic novel and Amazing Spider-Man stories. Great bang for the buck. Hmm. Yeah, you used that, uh, I think, did you use that word cohesive before? When I might have, I don't know. When you were describing this volume, it is. It's a, it is a good cohesive one. I think the, the fact that it has one artist doing everything, except for the original graphic novel, oh, I guess aside from one Bagley issue, um, that yeah. really helps make a book cohesive. Absolutely. Because he's right, the last one, the last volume, Cosmic Adventures, that, because it was a big crossover between the three Spider titles, we got so many different artists on there and even several different writers as well. That one was more of a hodgepodge. Absolutely, yeah. It was not. Uh, it was not as clear in tone because uh, you have a lot of different creative teams kind of working against each other, and it's never going to be the same as when you have one writer, for the most part, one artist, and a, you know a better sense of vision. The other thing that this volume has going for it, it, it doesn't include any annuals because that I think really bogs down the flow of the book as well. And in the next volume, mm-hmm. we're going to get three Spider-Man annuals with all of the backups included. So that um, that's quite a grab bag <laughs> right there, quite a variety. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's dive into the issues here. We are going to start with Spirits of the Earth. This is an original graphic novel. Marvel had a graphic novel line for many years through the 80s and 90s where they would have just a a singular, more prestige format, a graphic novel. There were no ads. They had larger pages. They had the full-color Marvel color process rather than just doing four-color process. And um, they they let writers have more of a creative vision over these storylines. And so this one is by Charles Vess, who uh, did a lot of Spider-Man covers before this. And he's mm-hmm. a, he does a lot of fantasy work. He's done a couple of other graphic novels that I've read, Marvel graphic novels, uh, to do with Thor. And um, he did a great story for Jeff Smith um, in the Bone series um, about Thorn. No, no, about Rose, Thorne's mom, Rose, when she was a young girl. And, oh, wow. Yeah, it's, it's really good. So he really leans towards the fantasy, high fantasy, a lot of medieval fairies and, you know, that kind of stuff, dragons. And, and this is right up his alley. And this story is, uh, let me see if I can recap it. You'll have to fill in the blanks. If I, There's kind of a lot going on here. Um, Mary Jane inherits a cottage from a distant relative if she got it over an email, I would have said you shouldn't go for it. It's a scam. Wasn't it a castle, not a cottage? Um, no, it was just a. It was just the cottage, just... I believe. Okay. Um, the castle happened to be there in this kind of sleepy Scottish Scottish town, and when they okay. get so Peter and Mary Jane go because that's kind of crazy. If she inherits a castle and then we never hear about it ever again in the history of Spider Man. <laughs> True, but Aunt May inherited a nuclear power plant. So, I mean, these things happen. (laughs) I guess so. Okay, where was I? So, they travel to Scotland, and they are going to take, like, a kind of a second honeymoon or whatever, enjoy the countryside, and they find out that there's some weird, strange things going on with the castle. It's haunted or whatever, not with, like, fairies and stuff. So, Spider-Man checks it out. Sure enough, has an encounter with some fairies, 
and or some some spirits, I guess. And the long story short, because it is kind of a long story, and I don't want to just recap the entire thing, he uncovers a plot by this one guy in the town who's trying to buy up the entire town bit by bit. He's actually bit part of a long line of Hellfire Club um, members. That's his lineage. And there is apparently a giant chasm underneath the castle that has a giant crystal that he's trying to like harvest and, and sell and make himself rich or something. And I don't know. There's just a lot going on here. And it was a little bit weird and a little disjointed. But man, the art was beautiful. I think you're being quite kind. Um, I, I thought that, I mean, first of all, it's placement in the volume. They put it where they had to so they didn't inter- interrupt the flow of anything else. Which is good. It's beautifully illustrated. It looks absolutely gorgeous. But the story is leaves a lot to be desired personally. I thought it was a, very much a slog. Um, I didn't. I, it had beautiful artwork, but I just thought there wasn't a, enough uh, kind of going on in the story. It didn't really keep me invested. The fact that uh, one of the listeners thought that it kind of felt more like a BPRD story is kind of my point where it's not really a Spider-Man story. It could have almost been <laughs> anyone. It's such a plot con- contrivance to bring them there uh, out of their kind of regular habitat, and it doesn't even feel like it's an earned contrivance. Um, it doesn't feel like it actually ends up being a big part of the plot at all. It's just like, let's get them over there and let's do stuff, as opposed to having them going there actually be a reason for them to be there. Like Instead, it's just kind of like, we inherited something, let's go. Right, they could have just um, gone for a vacation. Yeah, literally anything. Like It could have been anything <laughs> that got them there, and I think that's kind of my problem with it, is that it just is so convenient. It's just like, well, we just need some way to get them there so I could do this story about Scotland, and it could have been any hero, and or at least Spider-Man feels very interchangeable here. It doesn't feel like it needs to be him. Uh, again, the artwork is gorgeous. No one is going to dispute that. It's absolutely stunning, um, extremely beautiful, but the story leaves so much to be desired. It's as, The fact that it's kind of got that sleepy look to the artwork is kind of how I felt when I was reading it, just because <laughs> the story put me to sleep. But the artwork was amazing. So I And I have some questions here. I want to know, like, so Spider-Man goes to this castle, and he sees these spirits, and they, like, actually interact with him. Like, one guy, one of them has a sword and knocks the, off one of the towers. So, like, they're corporeal in a certain sense. But are they, like, what's their purpose? They they don't really explain why we see them. And then we uncover that the actual plot is actually humans. It has nothing to do with the spirit world. And we don't know, like, why... They, they don't connect. Nope. <laughs> they don't connect at all. I would have preferred if the story stayed around those spirits and there was something else, like maybe Spider-Man's... Like, they, they've explored Spider-Man's connection with the spirit world, like, with the animal kingdom or whatever. And, like, that's what Straczynski was doing and... Like, if they kept with that, that would be great. But then they have this weird juxtaposition between the spirits and, like, science fiction. All of a sudden, halfway through the story, is now a science fiction story. Mm-hmm. And it was that sort of, uh, it was that difference. It was jarring going from one thing and then going to the Hellfire Club. Yeah, it's, uh, again, I, I feel like you could kind of, you know, come up with a short list of other Marvel characters that would maybe be better suited to the story and it might fit better. Um, like someone who actually deals with spirits, or yeah. yeah. But at the same time, I did like and Charles Vest. There's a there's a little essay in the back of this graphic novel about the uh, just about the making of this graphic novel, which he says it took him two years to draw, and the concept writing it and everything like that took a couple years be- even before that. So this is this is a a, a labor of love, I think. But mm-hmm. he he says that um, he chose Spider Man because. He wanted to do the sort of country mouse, city mouse 
but in reverse, mm-hmm. where the city guy is taken out of his context and placed in a in an environment that he's not used to. And I really did like that. I liked it when he got there and like he can't swing on his webs normally because there are no tall buildings and you know figuring out how how to be spider-man in this sort of environment i liked that i thought it started out nice but then it just Mm -hmm. didn't go anywhere like you said or it went in weird places that i didn't agree with it's interesting you say that because i mean everything you just mentioned if you read the the commuter story you'll get that right yes and i guess this is one step further because Much you're further. even taking it, just, it's not just a suburb. <laughs> yeah, it's way further. And it's not just <laughs> Scotland. It's like this teeny tiny little tip of a, an island of Scotland or something like that, but not as effective as that commuter issue, that's for sure. No, uh, but again, you know, they play very differently. One of, them, one of them is meant to be a laugh, and one of them is meant to be a much kind of more adult exploration. And again, it's just, it's not that it's a bad story. It's just, I found it a little bit of a sleepy one and one that maybe wasn't best suited to the character, but the art was still great. And, uh, you know, I've read a lot of worse things than this. And so if this is the, if this is the low point of the volume in terms of story, um, we're still way ahead of the game. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. Okay. Well, let's keep on going then. Do you want to give us a little intro to the next issue? Sure. I mean, so the next six issues are really breezy. Um, they move really quickly. They're smooth reads. Um, I think actually at this time, I'm just checking, I'm pretty sure that the um, you were getting two issues a month, right? Yes, that's right. They move very quickly, and that part of that's why. I mean, I think that this is kind of their summer event that they used to kind of do. Instead of actually having crossovers, they would just, you know, ramp up the publishing schedule. And we're kind of used to that now as being more of a regular thing. But back in the, the 90s, it was very much like, a, okay, we're going to do a burst during the summer, and then we're done. The most impressive thing here is that Eric Larson does every single issue. Even when this this book goes bi-monthly, he he doesn't miss a single one. Um, and a lot of times when you'd go bi-monthly, like, and we'll see this in the next issue with Round Robin, that that's the bi-monthly story for that year, and it's a different writer. And um, and Bagley does all six of those issues, but then he takes some time off afterwards. But Eric Larson doesn't skip a beat here. He does them all. No, I'm very no, impressed. Doesn't. Now, the uh, the comment you got, I guess, on Facebook about the storyline um, having certain elements which are uh, homages to uh, the first Amazing Spider-Man annual, they're very apt. I don't know if you've read that recently. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I did specifically when I was looking through this, reading through this volume, I did look at that. I can't remember if in my time speaking with Larson if I'd brought this up because I feel like I did, but I think I asked him about, you know, the very conscious decisions to kind of have the random guest stars just like in the original annual, um, to have the kind of the full page splashes for each of the villains just like the original annual. We kind of were looking at the the old annual where the where the Sinister Six had first appeared and a part of that was, well, there was it had all these little cameos from other Marvel characters. Oh, okay. But, that's kind of like let's let's emulate that a little bit i also every every villain in that had got to have a splash page where they were doing their thing yes that was something where it's like all right i gotta give every one of these villains a splash page where he's strutting his stuff they're so Um, good yeah they're really great you know that was just part of the fun of of doing that book and trying to go okay what can i do that would be different from the way he did it and stuff like that. Actually, I think David was a little annoyed at me that I didn't tell him that I wanted to do that because he was like, I would have written this in such a way that we could have everybody would have had their moment. And I was like, oh, well. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, it's a great piece of, um, if you knew the original annual, this is going to have a certain sense of payoff, or at least kind of touching on something you've seen before. But if you haven't, you'll miss nothing. It's just uh, a nice little touch. So this issue is, um, it starts with basically a recruitment drive. Uh, Doc Ock needs Electro, so he, he lures Electro into something um, and then kind of commits them to join him. Uh, you have Peter... Uh, working, I guess, at the science lab, and uh, he's working on an upcoming project that they're going to be launching a satellite into space. Uh, you have a lot of MJ kind of working at, uh, what was it, Secret Hospital is the name of her soap opera, and maybe some shenanigans are going on uh, on screen, or sorry, off screen, I should say. Nathan Lubensky has definitely got some something in mind. He's, he's, he's walking around with a lot of money, and uh, that's basically the issue. Yeah. The Nathan Lubensky story is actually a pretty good one here. I like the, uh, I like this character. He, because he's not a typical, I, I guess, not a typical old guy. <laughs> he, he's very. Um, I mean, he's he's kind of grumpy, like a lot of times old people are portrayed. But he's got a he's got definite purpose, being with Mary mm-hmm. uh, with Aunt May, and and a drive to care for her, even though he's you know he's in a wheelchair and really sick. And the conversation that he has, or I guess the the conversation that Spider-Man has with that bystander um, after he prevents that mugging, just talking about how Nathan is scared of death. It's like he's got to this point and he's kind of afraid to go. So he's, you know, he doesn't know how to deal with it. So that's kind of why he's kind of lashing out or acting out a little bit. I thought that was Mm. was just a nice conversation. And we'll find those kind of conversations all throughout here. Michelini does some really nice character moments like that for sure i mean there are some interesting points here um one that i always thought was funny is uh when spider-man goes to kind of break up the thugs who are about to mug uh nathan and then one of them out of nowhere has like nunchucks <laughs> yeah i love it yep it's like he uh, and it's like oh you know oh he uh this and i'm like that, that's kind of painful but but funny i mean and again the issue these six issues in particular are extremely breezy they're not as uh, heavy on plot um, you get a lot of scenes, though, a lot of different kind of things happening. I like the idea. It's very foreboding. You have the return of Sinister Six. It's right there on the on the cover. And then you have Doc Ock starting to assemble a team. And it's pretty cool because, you know, they're not just kind of quickly putting the team together. They're taking their time to slowly kind of put the team back together. Uh, you have, have uh, Sam in here kind of being convinced to join the team at the end as well. The only thing that I think some people don't like, but it kind of works because it's that over-to-the-top kind of fun atmosphere, is just how crazy Doc Ock's tentacles are. Oh, they're so awesome. I love it. There's no sense of real physics here. <laughs> no. um, they're totally over the over the top. Now, I do love this version of Doc Ock that gets introduced. I think Mark Bakley does it better later. But the whole him being in the suit, um, as opposed to being the classic kind of in the old green bodysuit. Now we have him wearing a, an actual white business suit. And it just looks really fantastic. It gives him a different air. Um, it gives him more credibility. It doesn't make him look as silly as sometimes he does in his more classic garb. And you kind of buy him as being this this evil super genius who's you know methodically putting people together as a team, as opposed to just being this kind of the the version we've been seeing in the years leading up to this, where he had had his mental breakdown, he was a little bit all over the place. You know, he was he was not this guy. He, he wasn't put together. He wasn't coherent. He was just kind of a raving lunatic at times, or kind of a blubbering baby, depending on which version of him you got. And this is this is Doc Ock back to he is a legitimate genius, and don't mess with him. So I'm going to play a little clip of Eric Larson talking about his version of Doc Ock, putting him in the suit, because that was Eric's decision. So listen to this. When he initially started, he was a guy who was wearing a lab coat. And then the next time we saw him, he was in jail, and he, and he was wearing just whatever any other prisoner in jail would, would wear. Right. And then as t- time went on, sometimes he'd be wearing 
you know, essential like hooligan kind of clothes where it's like he's just wearing a sweater and and a regular pair of pants and shoes. And it was only towards the end of Ditko's run where suddenly he's in something that's kind of like a jumpsuit, but even then it was more like loose-fitting coveralls and less like tights. Right. But then once you get into the John Romita's part, suddenly it's like, oh, no, he's wearing tights. <laughs> and, and eventually you're just like, we got a fat guy running around in tights here. This is not a good <laughs> This guy does not look menacing. What can we What can we do here? And there was around the period I was sharing a studio with a bunch of other guys, and one of them was uh, a commercial artist who uh, was was drawing the. You know, are you familiar with color color forms? I think they're called. Oh yes, yep. There, you know, there's like the, there's these rubber things that you put on to backgrounds and and. And like you can act out the scenes. Here's me was doing Dick Tracy color forms. Nice. So he'd had all these model sheets of all the the Dick Tracy characters from the uh, from the Warren Beatty movie. Oh yeah. So it was right around that time. And so he had all these all these pictures and stills and stuff. And I was looking at those, going, "That's that's more what Doctor Octopus should be doing. He should be like that. That kind of uh, like." He he would always fit in with those kind of gangster kind of things anyway. You'd always, you know, there'd be this bunch of gangsters hanging around. And then here's Dr. Octopus in his tights hanging out with him, his brightly <laughs> colored tights. It's like, one of these things is not like the other. <laughs> well, seeing um, him in a suit makes him look more confident in himself, like he's got yeah, a really commanding presence now. Yeah, and also, you know, he's... But he's got the physical strength of an ordinary human being when it comes to his actual physical stuff. So why is he trying to punch Spider-Man at all? He's, my thought was he should just be doing anything else and just have his arms do all the work. And so I would frequently have him just be in the, you know, smoking his cigarette or, or, pouring himself a cup of coffee or just <laughs> doing something else with his with his regular human being hands. Right. That that is like, oh, I'm back here tying my shoes while I'm kicking the living crap out of you. <laughs> you know? Oh man, yeah. It's yeah. Like, You're not even worth my effort. I can do this without even paying attention to you. You know, I'm back here trying to comb my hair and keep this cowl <laughs> on. I, I couldn't believe that the Sinister Six actually hadn't been seen since that one time in the 60s. I know, it's crazy, right? I thought that they just kind of got together all the time and, and, like, they would come back every few years to Bug Spidey, but this was 30 years later. Or not, not mm-hmm. quite 30 years later, like 25 years later, but that that's just amazing because the Sinister Six has been used so many times since this. And, in fact, there was one time when there's like, the Sinister 66, right? And there was, like... Doc Ock got every Spider-Man villain together to That's battle right. him at once. And, <laughs> and Norman at one point had the Sinister 12. So yeah, like we've seen, they've come back to this concept. I mean, and in the meantime, you did have in the uh, the Falco run, you did have the Sinister Syndicate being introduced as kind of a new team. Right. So it's not like we were totally absent. Now, two quick things I wanted to mention about this issue. So the big kind of uh, pointless guest star that we have is Iron Man, who shows up for a panel. Yep. And you have... Uh, as Peter kind of being upset that people aren't more excited to see Spider-Man, which is a little out of character because not used to seeing him being that kind of petty. And another thing is that when he's working at the lab, 
Um, one of the people who's working there, her name is Anna, sorry, Anne Marie. But when they have a shot of her, um, not of her body, but just of her face, it, it made me realize that she looks a lot like Anna Maria um, from Dan Slott's run. Obviously, it's a different oh. character, <laughs> yeah, but right. I'm just like very close in name and close in visual. And I just thought that was kind of an interesting connection that I'd never made before. She's taller. She's much taller. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah very interesting. Uh, okay, well, let's move on to the next one here. This is Sinister Six, Part 2. This is issue 330, 335, and it's called Shocks. And uh, we get a great splash page at the beginning with Hobgoblin. I really like the way that Eric Larson has, uh, that he draws Hobgoblin very uh, demon-like. Of course, Hobgoblin's gone through some transformations recently in the comics uh, at this point, so he's very demonish. Yeah, and I guess that's something that they don't really explain here. And if you... And I guess uh, in terms of you know things you need to go know going into the volume, this is not the original Hobgoblin. This is, uh, well, depending on how you look at it, if the stand-ins count as other Hobgoblins, um, this is the Jason Philip Mackendale Hobgoblin who's kind of made a deal with, with the devil, so to speak, and been transformed into a demon himself. Uh, this is before that demon will eventually be separated and created the character of Demogoblin. Um, so this is, yeah, as you said, a recent transformation for the character. He's not the you know traditional Hobgoblin in any way. Um, and to be honest, I feel like no writer has ever given him his is due right. uh, as uh, they've always kind of played him as an also ram which is too bad uh because i th- still think they had a lot to bring to the table especially after becoming demonic but uh he's especially in this volume he's very much downplayed um he can do a lot but not here so in this issue uh shocker robs an armored truck and the police tell mj that caesar might be behind the attacks that she's been experiencing on set and Dr. Octopus recruits Mysterio and Hobgoblin to his team um, that he's forming. So, yeah, and another really good issue, just uh, kind of full and exciting. Um, who's the pointless cameo in this one? Captain America. It's Captain America. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> just uh, just as, uh, appearing at a fundraiser. That's it. Yeah, it's just it's nice to see Eric Larson put all of these guys in here. Uh, and I don't think For we've sure. had any of those big splash pages yet that um, that we're talking about. Uh, we'll point those out as we get to them as well. For sure. One thing that is interesting about the volume, reading it in rapid succession, is how many times they randomly run into Flash and uh, Felicia Hardy on the street. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> All the time. And his outfit, his outfits are always ridiculous because he's always basically looks like he's just come to the gym or is in the middle of a run. But here in particular, with the uh, the arrow pointing at his crotch, is particularly egregious. <laughs> I don't know if that was intentional or not, but it's it's ridiculous. Um, he it's so '90s. It is so absolutely early '90s for sure. But if it's if it's the character, yep, it does. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, same with Mary Jane's huge hair. I really like the huge hair. Yeah, it's yeah, it's pretty it's pretty crazy. Um, when they first have that shot of. Um, Doc Ock coming through the smoke to confront Hogwabon. I love that. The, the use of shadow, the oh, fact yeah. that you don't actually see his face yet or his glasses, it's very imposing. Um, and again, even the detail on the Hobgoblin there is fantastic. The only detail that doesn't quite work is that the the expression on the shadowed Hobgoblin's face almost looks a little too nervous and not nearly as threatening as it would have on the previous page. <laughs> it's I just that yeah. eye. I think it's the eye. The eye makes him look like, Ugh! Oh yeah, because it's, yeah, it's kind of wide. He's got a wide eye. But otherwise, yeah, this is this is fun. Um, it's a fun issue. And again, there's Doc Ock's doing everything kind of behind the scenes. Spidey knows that something's happening, but doesn't know everything yet. Um, and he just has to kind of fight the Shocker here, which is a fun fight. I like the Shocker. 
I think my love my love of the Shocker comes from uh, his use on the X uh, sorry Spider Man animated series because he was yep. well used there and had a great voice. So whenever I see him, I kind of I think of that. So I think that's part of why I like the Shocker so much. Well, and he was part of the Sinister Six, I think, on the TV show, right? Yeah. Oh, sorry, the Insidious Six. The Insidious Six. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it can't be sinister. <laughs> <laughs> but but yes, you're absolutely correct. Um, and I, and I, again, at the end of this issue, um, again, it's about Peter kind of putting the breadcrumbs together, and he finds out about, oh, wait, Mysterio sounds like he's involved. Uh, maybe this is Doc Ock again. Maybe something's going on. So it's kind of cool to see him putting the pieces together. He's not a detective by any means, but um, it's nice to kind of see him putting it together. And this is what I kind of like about him being at the Daily Bugle as an employee, is that he hears stuff. You know, he hears stuff in the newsroom, he hears what reporters are working on, and allows him to kind of piece things together before they actually come to bear. Yeah, exactly. All right, so we have uh, issue three hundred and thirty-six. This is Return of the Sinister Six, Part Three. On the on the uh, cover, someone dies, and uh, you have um, on the cover you have a uh, vulture and Chance. And Chance, no one says nineties or like late eighties, early nineties like Chance. <laughs> I like the character to be honest. I think he's interesting because he's different, and he has a very different kind of reasoning behind being the character that he is. We don't really see him much at all. The most notable thing about him probably is that he was originally illustrated by Todd McFarland in one of his first issues on the book right. on Amazing right. Spider-Man. But other than that, I feel like he never really gets a lot of play. Um, I like this here that you have Kingpin kind of auditioning people to work for him, which I think is funny. And because you'd think he'd hire, he'd kind of relegate this to someone else. Like he'd farm this out to someone else. But instead, he's there um, and he's you know hiring the, the Vulture to work for him. Um, and the vulture has to kind of kill this guy, and everyone, everyone's bidding on this. Like it's kind of crazy that Nathan is somehow gets involved. Like I don't know how Nathan found out about the a contract being on this guy, and we should put bets on whether or not this guy's going to die. It's yeah. super crazy. It's a Deadpool. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. But I and that's fine. And I get that people like Chance and, and etc. would be involved. But how does old man Nathan? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, an old guy in Queens is that plugged in that he knows about this. That seems a little nuts to me. But uh, again, it's one of those details you kind of have to gloss, just gloss through it because um, you know it's they they needed to get everyone in the same spot. And I think that Michelani was just like, you know what? It's just simpler if we have everything beyond the line in terms of his money and a way to connect it in with the main plot. Yes, it's contrived, but it kind of it, he needed everything to kind of work in a sort of similar fashion so that everything would kind of you know fall apart at the same time uh the pointless cameo here is dr strange uh in really the most pointless like at least the others were like <laughs> you know iron man was bringing something in captain america was doing a demonstration uh but here it's just he's he's just walking amongst the crowd for no reason in this in like just in space and somehow the um, spider-man spider sense which should not be able to pick it up because it's not in any way a threat but uh he's you know it's tingling and we see him and that's the most pointless one we also have the full page splash page of Spider-Man versus the Vulture. It's really That's cool right. on page 147. This issue because we have a flying villain, um most of the most of the panels here, especially in the fight scenes, they're vertical and they are mm-hmm. they're very very narrow and they stretch the entire length of the page. And so Eric Larson, he's just fantastic at his composition and laying out the panels because when you restrict yourself to just having these thin, skinny panels. Um, it's different if the panel were um, horizontal and skinny uh, because you just have you have the panorama to be able to tell the story, but you are so limited when you only have um, a very, very small window to play with. And he does a For great sure. job in, in, especially the the scene where Nathan is falling. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, that one. And it's interesting too, because obviously that evokes Gwen Stacy's death, because again, that was a very, that was a, a, a panel that was not that dissimilar in terms of been going down the page. Yeah. And it's interesting that, you know, that, that doesn't kill him in any way. It doesn't hurt him, but then his heart is what kind of gives way. And it's interesting because it's yeah. a, it's a big emotional beat in the middle of the storyline. You have, you know, the personal stakes for Peter are a lot higher now. Obviously he already knows these villains are all together. He knows that, you know, that, that uh, Doc Ock's been on a recruiting drive and now it's made more personal because of the death of Nathan. But what's interesting is that not long after this, I mean, we're reading the issues that are right after uh, the return of the Sinister Six, and May moves on really quickly. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously, emotion- emotionally, she's still dealing with it, but it just felt like, you know, they they didn't deal with the emotional fallout that long. And maybe in some ways that's good, in some ways it's bad. In some ways, you know, you don't want to have Aunt May being forlorn forever. Uh, you don't want her, be, you know, that is a little depressing to have this character kind of mourning for a long time. But at the same time, you want some sort of mourning period. And I guess if you're reading this not in condensed fashion like we are, it wouldn't feel quite as abrupt because it, you know, you get like a year and you say, okay, you know, months have gone by in your reading life and the issues have been separated by that much amount of time. Whereas with us, we're reading these in rapid succession, so it seems a lot more foreign. It seems really compressed. Yeah, but these ones are still just two weeks apart. So we're just talking a matter of maybe a couple of months and then Willie Lumpkin comes into the picture. Um, <laughs> it, it still isn't that long. No. And I have a question. Now, maybe this is just me. I was always under the assumption that Willie Lumpkin and Aunt May would be about the same age, if not him being older in terms of the way he was always portrayed. And yet here, she calls him like the young man. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wonder if that's just Aunt May being polite uh, and being Aunt May, because that's something that she would say, I think. But wasn't she saying it to Peter? Like, wasn't she speaking to someone who wasn't Willie? Uh, I don't remember. Remind me when we get to that part of the in the book again. Oh, don't worry. I will. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. You made a mention about how um, the the webbing and that the fall doesn't hurt Nathan as well, but it sort of starts a heart attack. We we it would just be a replay of Gwen Stacy if uh, that sort of catch. That's true. Did yeah. It, it would have. To, I think it's the it's the right choice to do to make him have a heart attack so that Peter won't feel guilt because that's not important to this story. It's important to Maze. Uh, storyline and where where May's character is going, but we don't want that to bog down what's happening to Peter right now. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I mean, I hate I hate to kind of use the term this way, but um, the use of Nathan Lubensky and him dying this way is it almost like the reverse fridging? Yes, you're right. It is. <laughs> like he he only dies to to you know to to, to push May's story along and keep her interesting, um, which is too bad because I mean he he was um a more multi-dimensional character that I would say than her later husband, uh, J. Jonah Jameson senior. He was interesting too, but, um, I think Nathan had a little bit more that kind of made him different. He was this cantankerous old man who had a lot of kind of baggage, but you know, it just felt a little bit more natural, their relationship. And I was sad to see him written out in this way. Yep. But I mean, he was only ever a side character and only ever meant to be a side character. So, I don't think we can expect... He's a side character, side character. <laughs> yeah, I, and we can't expect more than that. I think the fridging aspect is 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 appropriate here because that's exactly what he was meant to be, his character to yep. be stuck in the fridge. <laughs> okay, we can move on to number 337, Return of the Sinister Six, Part 4. This one's called Rights and Wrongs. Play on words because it's rights, R-I-T-E-S. Oh, they're so literary. Oh, I know. Terry Austin inks this issue, which is really nice. He does a great job. Uh, he, I think he does the next one as well. And in this one, uh, the Hobgoblin and Mysterio steal, how do you pronounce this? Burundite. 
operundite, <laughs> uh, whatever that is. And Vulture and Electro and Sandman are, are sent to steal some other stuff. We have the six together now, and they're actually starting to put their plan into action. And I guess this is such a weird plot. So Dr. Octopus is using this Burundite to create an antidote or like a cure to cocaine addiction. <laughs> um, and it's not altruistic. He doesn't want to do it to help people. He wants to do it so that all the crime cartels out there will be rendered useless so that he can step in and do something. I don't even know what. But um, so, but so th th what happens is that this, uh, this cure, it actually, it's a gas that goes into your body. And when you come in contact with cocaine, you have convulsions. It gives you convulsions. So it's like you can't have cocaine, otherwise you'll die. That's, that's the mysterious was, cure. Was it just cocaine, though, or was it all drugs? Because I thought, in particular, he was thinking that, you know, it was the people, the movers and the shakers with all the money were the ones who were kind of having cocaine. But I thought it was kind of supposed to be all drugs. Uh, it might have been all drugs. I'm not sure. I just remember him talking about cocaine in particular, so... Um, Which makes sense for the for the time period. I mean, you know, that would have been on people's mind that you know it's kind of the Wall Street era, yeah. Um, drugs and drugs and money. It's interesting too that initially that's that's only what the reveal is. I mean, originally um, he's telling the Sinister Six that you know they're they're going to create an antidote to uh, basically a poison and that they're going to unload this poison on everyone and then they're going to have the um, the the cure to it and that they're going to be able to survive and they're going to be able to kind of rule the world. Yeah. And it turns out to not be that crazy. Um, this issue is interesting as well. That you finally have the Sinister Six together, but then you immediately kind of split them off and doing side missions. Um, the big uh, splash page here is Spider-Man versus Hobgoblin, and I hate the perspective on the shot because it just doesn't make any sense. Uh, let me see here. Is that the one where they're crashing through the window? Yeah, it's page oh, 165 yeah. of the epic. You're right. This is It is weird. Because uh, Hobgoblin's flying in from the side, but Spider-Man's crashing through the window, but he punches him like in front of his face yeah and it looks like he's kind of he's gone past hobgoblin but has punched enough backwards that he's been able to hit him in the head but like around his like his foot as well yeah like it like spider-man should be behind the hobgoblin shouldn't he or or not probably like, again it's a weird it, it's a weird contorted shot like uh and i guess this is probably probably a hard one for larson to even figure out how to lay out because you have a character who's flying on a glider and you also have to have spider-man connecting with them and it has to <laughs> both characters to kind of be in full in profile yeah. it's a it's a hard one because everyone else is kind of standing generally and it's a lot easier to have those kind of shots but this one's a lot harder because there's more because you have to have the glider in there right yeah yeah i think it's fine if you don't look at it too carefully it looks, still looks cool with all the broken glass <laughs> <laughs> this is true. In this issue, we have uh, Felicia Hardy and Flash Thompson. Uh, you know, they're beset by some goons. So we have uh, Flash Thompson coming coming to the rescue and protecting her. And uh, it's kind of a, a cliched moment, but it's important for their relationship because it's the moment where Felicia decides, wait a minute, maybe I'm not just being a jerk anymore. Maybe I actually like this guy. Maybe he's nice to me, which is not a, not a good reason to suddenly come around on someone. Oh, he's nice to me, so I should like them back. <laughs> but it does kind of underlie that you know there's there's a change uh, in their relationship that starts happening here. I really liked Felicia's story her, through this whole book. I thought it was really, really well done. Just her turned from being from using Flash to actually caring about him. I thought it was great. 
I I will agree. However, I will say that I don't think Michelini understands how to write Black Hat at all, though, because his version of Black Hat does not feel like any other version of Black Hat. And I say that knowing that every writer kind of obviously puts their own spin, but the Black Hats that most feel most don't feel like the actual Black Hat are David Michelini's and Dan Slott's. Those versions I feel are so uh, far from who that character actually is, and that like her being this petty and this kind of crazy does not feel accurate. I think the <laughs> best time. The, the most accurate black hat that Michelani ever wrote was in Amazing Spider-Man 300, where she gets her nose broken. Or maybe just before that, I can't remember. I think it's 300, or maybe it's the issue before. But that, that I think, is the most... Or Actually, I'm thinking later than that. I think in issue 315 or so, because she doesn't know that Peter's married at that point and she gets her nose broken. Uh, in fact, there's there's a comment somewhere here about she's hoping I she doesn't get her nose broken again. <laughs> right. And I thought that was kind of a sly reference to when Venom beat her. Right, yeah, it is. Um, and the cameo in this issue is Kid Nova. Yeah, and this is not a surprise because Eric Larson is a huge Nova fan. So I'm not surprised to see him kind of show up here. Gave him one of the biggest panels in any of the these pointless cameos. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it looks great. And, like, the character looks fantastic. I'm sure the only bummer that he probably had is that he had to draw this costume and not the original. Right. Yeah, probably. Uh, in this one, we also get the subplot where uh, Caesar is making his plan to kidnap Mary Jane and take her to a, a secluded island resort where no one will bother them. So I found this super creepy oh, given yeah. the current context. Like at the time, this might have felt more like a kind of a cool storyline to do, but now I feel like this is a lot more problematic. Um, it's really creepy. And uh, like I, I think it, it plays differently in 2018 than it did in 1991 um, because there's a, this, is, this, is, this is a sexual predator. This is, this is creepy stuff. Yeah, well, look at all the pictures he has behind him on the wall. It's like all of Mary Jane's risque pictures are all right there. Yeah, um, we do have a, another splash page here in this issue as well with Electro, and this one looks a lot more natural. This is this is uh, no, I guess Electro is slightly off. He's not quite looking directly at, at Spider-Man, but it still feels more on point than the Hobgoblin one, except for the fact that he's not standing on anything. I think is great. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, <laughs> that is true. <laughs> Yeah, well, no, this is, it's still fun. Like, all of these issues together are so much fun. It, it's uh, its really, really fun superhero stuff. And and these issues are actually some of the first Spider-Man stories, uh, comics that I remember reading. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Yeah. These, I mean, the Cosmic Adventure stuff is kind of where I started with Spider-Man, and I had maybe three out of six of these Spider-Man, or Sinister Six issues, and I've actually never read the full story until reading this epic so, oh wow there we go <laughs> it was nice to be able to fill in those gaps because some of this stuff is so incredibly familiar because i've read it a million times since i was 10 years old and some of it i just didn't know at all so it was it was a pleasure to to be able to pick up this <laughs> this book <laughs> all right so we got amazing spider-man 338 yep part five uh, at last bought battle royal not battle royale battle royal Oh, yeah, I didn't notice that. Uh, the actual storyline is called Death from Above. Here you have more inks by Mocklin, and it's very noticeable. Especially because uh, when, I forget who was doing the inking on the first couple of uh, issues, but you had uh, a lot of exaggeration on like um, on the pudginess of Doc Ock and his face and all the faces, really. And here it's very noticeable that there's none of that. And um, it definitely doesn't add the same level of dimension to uh, Larson's work when it's embellished. Like here, it's it's kind of it's very basic in inking. It's not nearly as uh, it's not adding as much character. Yeah. So you're thinking of the Terry Austin issue 
with the pudginess of of Dr. Octopus. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, well, and I think, yeah, well, especially Austin. He was definitely added a lot there. So here, the art is still good, just the inking isn't nearly on point. So it, it lacks some of the definition that I've come to kind of enjoy from Larson's work. You have a great spread with Mysterio here, which I really enjoyed. The one with Sandman is less of a kind of classic um uh, splash because it's now Sandman kind of deciding that he's he's good he doesn't believe in being the bad guy which is very true to the character at this point and he's only there because he's being blackmailed into it so now he's kind of teaming up with Spidey and he's he's protecting Spidey so that I really liked yeah I thought that was great too besides the issues with Mocklin's artwork it was pretty cool the big climactic ending where uh, Spider-Man gets doused with the virus is a, a great cliffhanger to leave the issue on um, this this just has a lot going on but it's fast paced it's it's action oriented. And uh, it's, a, it's a good read. It's a lot of fun to have Spider-Man having to go up against everybody. Now, I made a comment about the restoration in the previous episode, uh, Cosmic Adventures, how I didn't like the colorist, whoever was doing the color restoration on here. And I'm going to say this again. On page 183, if you turn to that page, you can see Spider-Man's webs. And it's like this person doesn't really know how to color inside the lines. <laughs> and it's like it's it's the webs and like of uh, the outline of Peter's costume like around his chest. It's like the 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 red's just all over the place. That's true. In fact, it almost looks like it's rippling in the air. I don't understand. It's if you look in the page before that, um the Spider-Man's foot that's at the bottom of the page, um like there's red bleeding out of there too. I I don't know why it's like this, but it's all throughout this book and it was in the last volume too. Hmm. So I don't know what it is, but I wasn't a fan with this restoration. Whenever the Marvel Masterworks gets up to the 90s, which will probably be in 20 years, they will oh God. hopefully uh, <laughs> redo this color job and, and make it a little bit better. Um, I do like the shot of the spaceship. Uh, the shuttle, I think I, I do like that. That's a nice shot. Yeah, totally. Yeah, there's tons of great stuff in here. Um, I like how at nighttime, Spider-Man's costume is all black. And you don't get any sense of the blue. Originally, I believe that um, Spider-Man's costume is supposed to be black and red and not blue and red. Yes. But you got to show some highlights somehow to show just roundness um, and sort of three-dimensional properties. And so they put the blue highlights on there. And then from there, it just kind of became all of a sudden the blue got bigger and bigger and bigger until all of a sudden his costume is red and blue. Mm-hmm. But the way... And I, I don't know if this is Eric Larson's decision or if this is Mike Mocklin being lazy, but um, the black is just all black. It's solid black and with no shading at all. And I think this is kind of more of what the original Ditko Spider-Man is supposed to be like color-wise. Yeah. One thing I do like, and I think it happens a lot more in this issue than the other ones, but something that Larson does in general, is he's really playing with Spider-Man's eyes and then a way of using that to kind of affect character and what's going on. Yeah. Um, and that's enjoyable because, you know, he goes wide, he goes, he goes you know, um, uh, tiny. Uh, he's using kind of the, the black spots as well. Um, you get a lot more definition. Does it make a lot of sense? No, but it looks great and for visual. Well, and I like how they've the movies have made that make sense in Spider-Man yes. Homecoming by giving him the different lenses and that kind of stuff. They took that that concept for sure. Okay, last issue of this series, at least, of this story. <laughs> Return of the Sinister Six, Part 6. It's issue number 339. The final chapter, it's called The Killing Cure. And uh, in this one, we get a new... We get a whole... T- look how many inkers are on here. Randy oh Emberlin, God. Mike Mocklin, Keith Williams, and John Romita. Wow. Now, I think that um, 
probably the 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 uh, the bi-weekly pace was taking a toll on Eric Larson, and so he had to get a lot of help to finish up this last last issue. So, oh, for sure. Um, and you have three color three colorists as well. Yeah. Wow. Yep, they were probably crunching some deadlines there. Sure, and I, I honestly, I love that opening slash of why isn't he dead? And I'm like, that's fantastic. Yeah, especially because we were expecting him to die in the last issue. He was dying, and then we just open it up, and it's like, nope, <laughs> they've been waiting for these last two weeks while we've been between the issues, <laughs> waiting for him to die, and he's not <laughs> dying. Uh, in this issue, this is where Doc Ock reveals that the poison is actually the cure for cocaine. Yeah. And... It's Peter the scientist who actually saves the day here. Uh, what what Doc Ock doesn't realize is that the 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 gas is they're they're going to send the gas up in that rocket we saw in the last issue and take it to the satellite station and spray the entire planet, but it's going to destroy the ozone. They didn't realize that, so everyone's going to die anyway. And so Peter the scientist has to save the day. And I like that aspect. It's like we've seen him fight the Sinister Six now a couple times. It's not going well. He's got to do something else. And so he uses his brain to figure out how to how to save the day. So I thought, I thought that was really nice. Um, the other part of this story is that the Caesar storyline is wrapped up because a police officer kills Caesar, <laughs> but it's not a police officer, it is another crazy fan. One crazy fan kills another crazy, the other crazy fan and poor Mary Jane caught in the middle can't imagine what that must feel like for her. Well, it's interesting, so I mean again, remembering the time frame this came out, it's remarkably violent for a Spider-Man book where you just have someone just point blank shoot someone else and, and murder them like that's not usually something you see in a Spider-Man book, especially of this time period so that's kind of jarring I think this um, is a Dick Tracy influence right there. Because the Warren Beatty movie would have just come out recently. So not only did it just come out, but in, in the original issues, if you actually go through and page through them, there's giant ads for Dick Tracy on every issue. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So you're co incredibly correct. But it definitely feels like a weird vibe for this book. Yeah. And even the, the color of the blood on Caesar, it's it's redder than you usually would see. I'm actually surprised it got this by the Comics Code Authority. It's true. Usually it's bl a blood is just black in comics at this at this stage. I mean, he's wearing a black suit, so that's why they couldn't have done that. But it, it definitely is kind of surprising. Um, and, and I'm glad that they ended the storyline. And I guess they get to give MJ some agency because she's able to kind of take him out on her own. But yeah. it definitely feels like, you know it's a retread of a retread. Like we're already getting Caesar again. And now we get some other creepy, creepy guy who then murders him. It's just, it's a weird touch. Um, but at least it kind of brings the Caesar thing to a close. And I think that was part of the point is that, you know, this is a creepy guy is kind of outside the law. He's a rich guy and he just wants to, you know, have MJ for himself. How do you get rid of this guy in a way that we don't ever have to see him again? Well, you murder him, but you can't have MJ do it. You got to have someone else do it. <laughs> And that's right. they were kind of way around it. And again, you get to give MJ some agency because she's able to, you know, protect herself and actually take out this this deranged fan. Yeah, yeah. I think it had to end that way. We get a nice splash page with Dr. Octopus. He's got the most craziest arms you've ever seen in this one. <laughs> uh, it is just absolutely ridiculous, <laughs> but so funny at the same time. Oh, yeah. No, they're, they're completely bonkers. But I mean, I like... 
you know, again, you gotta you gotta choose either you're gonna embrace the cartoony aspects or you're not. And so, if you're embracing Larson's strengths as a storyteller and as an artist, it's about the cartooniness. He's able to kind of take the the fun and absurd and dial it up to eleven and go a little bit crazy with it, and it's fun. And so, if you embrace the artwork that way, then there's nothing wrong with this version of the tentacles. If you're someone who likes a lot more kind of making sense of comics and not the kind of crazy cartoony thing, you're gonna hate this. <laughs> yeah. Our pointless cameo in this one is Thor, and he uh, actually plays a part in the story this time. He takes the uh, he takes the satellite in, uh, that's currently in orbit with the the antidote or whatever. He takes it to Asgard. Absolutely. Now I, I want to believe so. Not the first page where Thor shows up, but the second one. I feel like that had to be the page that they did on the Friday night at like five, you know, six six p.m. and with the seven p.m. deadline to get it to the printer or something. Yeah. Because the details here are so bad. Oh, man. Um, on Th- Thor's Thor huge arm. Hammer. <laughs> what is with that? <laughs> and it almost looks like he doesn't have another arm. Yeah. Like it's there, but it, like it looks, it almost looks like a weird fleshy thing that's part of the other person next to him. Like there's not a lot of good definition. It's very abstract. I don't blame Larson though, because again, he was under an insane deadline. The fact that he was able to get all these six issues out at all is is amazing. There's only a few artists who could do that without really sacrificing quality. And the fact that he was able to get so much of it done without it being noticeably uh, change in quality is nothing short of a godsend. So you know what? I will more than happily just let this one go. Okay. Well, that's good. So we've got Amazing Spider-Man 340. Uh, on the cover, it has uh, it says Female Trouble. It also says it's New York's neurotic superhero. Uh, and introducing the Femme Fatales. Uh, the uh, story itself is called The Hero Subtractor. It's by David Michelinie and Eric Larson. Um, it's not a lot to this issue. We have a lot of kind of, um, you know, harmless spider fun. You have Spider-Man fighting these, these uh, female characters. Uh, you also have uh, Peter having a bit of a heart-to-heart with Aunt May. You have Peter kind of wondering what about his powers he i forget exactly how he ends up with this scientist and who's testing out this big you know contraption and it seems to affect his powers and suddenly kind of almost take them away um at the end of the issue decides you know what maybe i'm done being spider-man i want my powers to be removed not the first time he's felt this way but uh it's definitely here he's like i want you to use your machine to remove my powers and uh, to put a fine point on it says completely and then forever (laughs) yeah just so that we really know that he means it just to drive it home these female characters the femme fatales they are actually uh two of them appeared in an issue of marvel comics presents that was written and drawn by eric larson uh and then the other ones i guess were created for this issue but they are so savage dragon like these these three characters they look and and feel like they're straight pulled out of uh out of eric larson's own book Absolutely. One thing I do love about this uh, particular issue, though, is that opening shot of Spider-Man. It's a very Eric Larson uh, style, but it's a great shot of Spidey, and there's no blues. It's just kind of all blacks, and um, I really like this interpretation. So do I. I think I actually really like Eric Larson on this book. I think he gives it such a, a great flavor, and this issue in particular is so Eric Larson. Um, just with the fights <laughs> with the villains and stuff, and if you if you fast forward to when he's um, he's drawing the adjectiveless Spider-Man title and he's doing the Revenge of the Sinister Six story, like that, and he's writing and drawing that one, it's it's so over the top. Eric Larson, it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, he he definitely is a creator who 
I respect more now, especially kind of following him on Facebook, et cetera, because he's, first of all, he's an incredibly honest individual. He's, you know, willing to accept what he can do and what he can't do. He's willing to say, yeah, that was, that wasn't good. That was great. And he seems to just have a lot of enthusiasm to kind of throw crazy stuff together and just have fun with it. I mean, Savage Dragon is a great expression of him just kind of having fun and doing what he wants to do with his own property, um, not taking it too seriously and just kind of trying to have a good time and keep himself motivated, keep himself interested. And I just find that in this age of social media, I don't like social media for the most part, but I do like the idea of we're able to understand more of these creators. And it's made me respect and enjoy him a lot more. And to be honest, the same could be said of Rob Liefeld, uh, because I can't, he's kind of a, an amazing cheerleader for comics. He just seems like he loves comics. He may not be everyone's favorite illustrator. He definitely has issues with anatomy at times, etc. But he's a guy who loves comics and loves drawing. And so it's hard not to appreciate that even if it's not necessarily your cup of tea to say at least this person loves what they're doing as opposed to just doing it to get a paycheck yeah so we can i'm going to digress a little bit here um i do encourage people to listen to our x-force episode that i did with james a couple weeks back because uh, we talk a lot about liefeld and that very thing and his facebook page is great and he has such a great sense of humor there's a character he designed, uh, as a joke, a character <laughs> called The Pouch that is completely made out of pouches because people rag on him for including so many pouches on cable and in his characters in the 90s. This character is actually going to be in, a, in an image comic book coming out in a couple of months. <laughs> it's so, amazing. It is amazing. amazing. And then um, in, a, in a few weeks when I release the full Eric Larson interview, we do talk a, a little bit about his work on Savage Dragon, and it's really interesting. And I'm not going to play a clip here because it doesn't relate uh, to Spider-Man, but it's, um, it's quite interesting to listen to. So make sure you check that out. All right. One thing I do appreciate about this, I mean, they're not necessarily super dense stories, but uh, at times they're very breezy, but um, they're fun and enjoyable. I mean, and, you know, we're going to come across this, and you've come across this with your other ultimate, uh, sorry, epic collections, is that sometimes you'll get the really heady ones where you could tell it was a, you know, a writer and an artist really trying to make their mark or trying to have kind of a deep epic. And that's not what's happening here. You just have, this is kind of a, and I don't mean this in any way as a pejorative, but this is kind of a fun workaday comic. You know, this is a writer and artist kind of just jamming out, you know, the writers coming up with a fun plot. Eric Larson's just uh, kind of having a good time with the art, and they're just kind of putting something together. Yeah. Um, it's not meant to be high art but it's still enjoyable yeah so let's keep on going here with amazing spider-man number 341 spidey's normal it's with and in brackets out without great power i like that title <laughs> and the cover is um a throwback to spectacular spider-man 158 when he had cosmic powers um and paste pot pete was the one in the doorway instead of tarantula so that's a that's a nice um homage cover it's interesting how many different like uh, narrative boxes are on the cover, though. Like it's very crowded. Like it's powerless part one. This is it. Spotty goes normal. Uh, now the weakest hero in the Marvel universe, in the the way that they used to use the official handbook of the Marvel universe font. Right. And then it's the, the tarantula really chose the right time to pick a fight. And then with no power. And then you also have you know over the, where I guess where the barcode would be, you'd have uh, the black cat's face. So it's just like there's so much going on here. And all of those boxes are also on the original cover. It, it mimics it perfectly but yeah that's okay. a lot that's a lot of trade dress <laughs> here yeah <laughs> so in this one spidey does get all of his powers removed um and then the tr <laughs> as it happens the tarantula decides to take some hostages and demands spider-man in exchange for the hostages 
and so of course he has to he he feels his sense of duty he's got to go after uh, tarantula even though he's powerless which is interesting because i mean obviously we're used to spider-man doing that and being like oh i gotta I gotta do it anyway but you have no powers like seriously dude yeah i think he can get away he thinks he can get away with just bargaining or or something but yeah he gets pretty beat up so one of the things i noticed throughout eric larson's book uh time on this book is that anytime spider-man is in serious trouble his costume gets ripped so you know that if he's in a tight spot that um it's it's he it's going really really bad for peter when his costume is destroyed for sure i will say this this issue is very enjoyable just because the artwork is fantastic like oh, yeah. the whole fight with tarantula is so well illustrated you really get a sense of how dangerous tarantula can be and he gives him real menace like he doesn't doesn't feel like a throwaway villain here it feels very dangerous the fact that you have a, a powerless body obviously uh accentuates that as well um i even liked uh, even though it looks ridiculous uh flash thompson showing up in his ridiculous training gear <laughs> yeah. and uh and taking on a gun and like sa- saving a like a priest, it's over the top, but uh, and very much of the times. But again, that is who that character is. He's a former soldier who, if he sees someone in danger, is going to do what he can to help out. And it's very exciting, and yeah, it, it's really well done. So concurrently, I'm reading the Punisher Epic Collection, Capital Punishment, right now because I got that episode coming up in a few weeks, and Tarantula is in those issues, a few of those issues. Oh. And he's written so completely different. It's a it's interesting reading. I was reading both of these at the same time, and having David Michelini writing Tarantula, and then having Abnet and Lanning writing Tarantula in that book. It's just so. It's interesting to see how the different people treat the character, and of course, Spider Man is a more fun, whimsical book, and and, and Punisher is more serious. So you get that kind of thing here, but you can tell that um i th- i think he's more menacing in this book just the way that he's uh this is the way he uses his powers like i i i've never really been a huge fan of tarantula but i understand how bad he can be here or how how actually useful i guess he could be oh for sure well i mean and it, and it helps again that we're having him go up against you know a powerless spider-man so everything feels a little bit more heightened because true um and the, and i think that's part of why this works so well is that you know, Tarantula, unfortunately, is not given a lot of good credit as being a good Spider-Man villain. He often seems outmatched, but when you have him up against someone who has no powers, something seems a lot more exciting. And, I mean, yes, Punisher technically has no powers, but he's so well-trained that it's like he does. Right. So in this issue, Aunt May meets uh, a new character. Not a new character. A new character to Spider-Man. <laughs> and starts to <laughs> fall for him. Willie Lumpkin, Fantastic yep. Four's mailman. I thought that was a, a funny touch here, but it seems so quickly after after Nathan's death. It does, but again, we're you know we're reading in compre- compressed format. You know, True. it would have been two or three months after he died in terms of release dates, or you know, so it wouldn't have seemed quite as bad. It's only when we're reading it like we are that it looks you know really strange. Right. Um, the other comment, I just one more thing for this issue is that um, the the guy here, you have to kind of be really paying attention to to put the clues together about who this dr turner actually is because he's sure. a, he's a mystery in the first issue he just seems like a normal doctor but in this issue he's got he's got like floozies that he hangs around with, with in his office <laughs> and at one point he turns around and he's got a different face and i didn't catch that the first time around that that was actually the case 
So I have to go back and, and read this and stuff. But uh, there's one thing through this. Uh, maybe you can help me, clue me in here. Um, Dr. Turner has on his desk this these this these laurels, like this, uh, you know, the wreath that Caesar wears yes. around. Now, they never explain through any of the, the issues why that is here and how that clues Spider-Man into... Um, into the, to who Dr. Turner actually is. Do you know the answer to this? Is it a callback to a previous storyline? No, I never figured that out personally. I, I And doesn't Spider-Man just know who he is because of the belt buckle? Um, I think, yeah, he noticed the belt buckle, but then I also thought it was the laurels that gave it away as well, but maybe not. I can't remember. Okay, yeah. Honestly, I, I, if I, I don't know what connection that actually had, to be honest. Uh, one thing I did want to mention is on page 261, um, you have um, Flash, Peter, MJ, and, and uh, Felicia having a, a picnic in the park, and that shot of uh, Peter jumping in the air with his frisbee looks ridiculous. <laughs> he had to squeeze it into that long, narrow panel. Well, it's just because there's like no real background, but there's like splotches of green. Oh yeah, bad colorist job there. Like it's it's really poor. Like it it's, is. It's just, and yeah, it's not necessarily Larson's fault, but it just it doesn't work as a panel. Yeah, yeah, he should have put a little bit of uh, background into there or something to give give uh, some context. I think that he just had to put the grass on the ground so that we would know Peter's jumping in the air. Otherwise, it would be weird just being plain white. Mm-hmm. And we do have, you know, obviously here we have uh, more developments in Flash and Felicia's relationship, and he's getting a little bit more serious about it. And also uh, Felicia's worried about Peter as well because, you know, she can sense something's off. And so I kind of like the, how that's going. And again, we're seeing further development of the Felicia character. Yeah, good. Issue three forty two. Without his powers, what chance does Spidey have against the Scorpion? Uh, and I, I like a word balloons on covers because it's it's especially not something we see anymore. No, it isn't. Um, and it's just Black Cat saying, "Stop it! You're killing him!" And Scorpion's just saying, "That's the whole idea." Uh, and is backed by the Black Cat. And this was a, again another fun issue. Um, you know, with some great action and. I, it's funny, I was actually recently on a, another podcast, which actually, which actually has not dropped yet, talking about a Scorpion issue from 1994, um, and I was saying in that that, you know, Scorpion doesn't usually get a lot of love, and definitely doesn't get a lot of credit, but here, again, potentially because we have, you know, kind of a, a powerless Spidey, we get to see the Scorpion being much more dangerous, and he's actually a scary villain, and having him go up against... Um, you know, Black Cat and the Powerless Spider-Man definitely makes him feel more menacing. And Black Cat really holds her own here for a while. And uh, I just, the artwork is great. And again, as you were saying, getting to see the battle damage on Spider-Man's uh, costume is, it gets to be a real hallmark of Eric Larson's uh, tenure, especially way over the top when he does Revenge of the Sinister Six. Yeah. Um, it's a definitely like cool look. And like when you have like kind of the, the shattered uh, white of the eye, um, it's a really cool look. And then in fact, the last issue in this volume, I think really uh, makes it look the best, which is an amazing Spider-Man 350. But um, you know, this is a, a really fun, enjoyable issue. Scorpion's dangerous. He seems like a real threat. This was just, uh, I thought it was a, a pleasant read all the way through. Awesome. Yeah, me too. The very last panel of this page is where Spider-Man picks up the laurel out of the trash, and that clues him in to who's behind it. Yeah, I don't, I don't, yeah, I, that, I don't remember that from anything. We're gonna have to uh, pay attention to that if we come up in like when we go back to do previous epic collections to see if that ever comes up. Absolutely. Or maybe one of you listeners can let us know because I'm sure somebody out there has the answer for us. We also get, and I guess is this the first appearance of Doctor Wortham here? It issue? is. Yep. 
Yeah, it's interesting because like I forgot that he hadn't already appeared, so I was like, oh, there he is. Wait a minute. <laughs> Like, yeah, yeah. They introduce him like he is a regular character, like we've seen him before. Like he's very kind of already, kind of already a realized character. But but at this point, there's there is some mystery around him. We don't know why he is healing somebody with his touch or how he's able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just kind of the way he is. So, but yeah, we'll find out more about him in the coming issue. Another thing about again how great the artwork is in this issue. So again, Eric Larson does is really hitting his stride with the action here, and like every shot of Spider-Man being blown through something really works for me. Like yeah. when when he um, gets dumped into I guess uh, into that skylight or into all those windows, and you just see him trying to web his way out of it, but still crashing through. Like that's a really visceral scene, and it looks great. Um, all the effects of all the all the glass as Spider-Man's crashing through it. Uh, on the next page, when you have him trying to web up Scorpion, and then Scorpion kind of blasting through, and uh, Black Hat, you know, trying to uh, push Spider-Man out of the way. And then the next page, when you have Scorpion again throwing Spider-Man through something, something that's made of wood. But again, you really feel every hit. You you feel a, a sense of consequence with every hit that Spider-Man's taking. He should probably be dead because again, he doesn't really have powers right now. But um, like you. <laughs> You do feel every every hit that gets made. Even Black Cat, when she's able to, you know, um, uh, use her claws on his back, on Scorpion's the kind of uh, the back, his back, and you know, damaging his circuitry is really cool. And uh, yeah, I, this issue is just uh, really moves. It's really quick, fast paced, but great action. It's a uh, it's a hoot to read. And I think we need to give a shout out to um, the anchor, Randy Emberlin. Oh yeah, because uh, a lot of the action is. Like he does a fantastic job with his action lines, all of the the motion lines in the background stuff, and and adding all of or I I don't know how much of the debris Eric Larson actually includes and how much Randy kind of just through his embellishing adds, but there is a perfect amount of debris in all of these mm. panels, the glass shattering, the wood the wood splinters, it's it's a lot. There's tons of it, but not enough to feel like the scene is cluttered. Um, no, but it's yeah, it's just so great. There's a lot of work going into the inking here. I think. Oh yeah, let's keep on motoring along. The next issue is three forty-three, and this one's called War Garden. And <laughs> in this one, Spidey and Black Cat track down Doctor Turner to a botanical garden, and Spidey finds out that his powers aren't actually gone; they're just repressed. Um, <laughs> But uh, before he gets them back, he has to battle Scorpion, Tarantula, and the Femme Fatales all at the same time. Which is pretty, yeah, it's it's pretty cool. And again, even the cover, which makes me laugh because, um, again, there's a lot on it. It's He's got his powers back, but look how many mo- mofos he's got to fight. And wait <laughs> till you find out who is really behind all this. And then in the corner, Powerless Part 3. Or is it four? Oh, who cares? Yeah, I love it. Uh, to be honest, I mean, it's it's evoking you know that old school Stanley style, right? Where you know the they they kind of talk to you in some way, uh, the narrator or you know some you know they're kind of breaking the fourth wall, not the character per se, but they're you know the creators are kind of breaking the wall and bringing you in, and they're talking directly to the reader, and this is just kind of uh, forwarding that sense of that sensibility. Yeah, definitely. And this is fun, you know. When we have Spider-Man getting his powers back, that's a great splash page. You know, Spider-Man's back, and he's had issues where he has had no powers and he's barely, had, you know, been able to survive. And now he's able to kind of take everyone out. It's a little sad that he's able to, you know, take out Scorpion that easily. But you know, it's good to see Spider-Man back and kind of taking care of business. And uh, yeah, I know it's pretty cool. 
And then at the end of this one, Black Cat loses her powers. But yes. I feel like it's like um, at the end, she's like, no, 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 I can feel it. Mine are gone for good. Like, well, that's what <laughs> Spider-Man thought, too. Of course, she doesn't She doesn't uh, lose her powers forever. They eventually come back because this is a comic book. But I just find it a little ridiculous. They're like, no, 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 your change was different. I can tell that mine is actually permanent. You were You were just imagining it. Well, I think part of it is also that, you know, the machine is gone anyway. So the idea is that, you know, his were suppressed and then they needed the machine to kind of unlock them. And that now that, you know, the machine is gone, that there's no unlocking device. So, I mean, of all the convenient ways to take out our powers, that's not the worst. Yeah. And we get another glimpse of Cardiac at the end. We got more Willie Lumpkin kind of meeting uh, Peter and MJ, which, you know, again, I kind of like that. It's very cute. It's weird. That you know May seems to treat Willie like he's younger, but otherwise it's pretty cool. And again, I like the glimpses of cardiac. Yeah. So you mentioned this before that Peter is clued into the chameleon through a belt buckle that he wears, and chameleon's gone through many different iterations. And when he first appeared, he was kind of just a master of disguise, and he'd actually have different masks and prosthetics and whatever that he'd wear to disguise himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know at what point he got a magic belt buckle that allowed him to change shape at will but um i always thought because that's how he changes in the spider-man cartoon series from the 90s absolutely that's why i take this at face value and say yep yeah right and i didn't realize like i thought that that was a device that was specifically created for the animated series i didn't realize that it actually came from the comic books yeah, no, that I, d- I did know that it had come first. I didn't, but but I always forget about that kind of stuff, and I don't know if it matters, but you're right, yeah. And I don't know at what point they decided to give him that as opposed to the way it used to be, but, I mean, he's kind of a tough villain to do con- convincingly. Like, he's, he's, he's in the Pantheon, but not necessarily the most respected, you know, villain in the Pantheon. So right, yeah. uh, I, like, I like giving him this kind of touch that definitely, uh, you know, makes him a little bit more effective. Um, and easier to I mean th- there have been some great chameleon stories so it's not like they really need this necessarily but it definitely helps alright issue 344 uh, so is Venom really dead new clues inside and then we have a Rhino on the cover saying hey I want to kill him and then is he hero or villain introducing Cardiac but wait there's more such as the Rampage and Rhino now how much would you pay and that's kind of funny <laughs> yeah. and the issue itself is called what Hearts and Powers um, we got more Michelinie and Larson. You have Emberlin still on inks. And I think he is probably the best fit for Larson. Uh, he seems to rein him in just enough, but not not too much. Cardiac looks awesome here. And again, I've, it looks like a very fully realized design in terms of even the the white piping is, you know, kind of meant to evoke uh, what's it called? Uh, a heart monitor, uh, which is kind of a cool touch. I, th- I think it's great. I love the design. Yeah, it's, it's a very kind of 90s design, but it's fun. Um, I like here, you also have a little bit more of MJ's life working on Secret Hospital, which is kind of cool. And uh, although I did feel that those pages looked a little less polished in terms of the inks, especially that first kind of full page of Wortham standing in his office and those kind of weird, long, elongated panels. I don't think those were necessarily the best, but we get a sense of this new character who's, you know, this character named Cardiac. We also get to see, and this is probably the most reprinted panel from this book. Um, is everything going on with Eddie Brock and Cletus Cassidy? Yeah. Because that is reprinted everywhere, uh, is th- that you have Eddie Brock working out in prison. Um, you have Cassidy just being totally crazy. This is his, I believe, his f- first appearance. I think so, um, yeah. And you get the idea that maybe the symbiote's still out there. 
Uh, but Eddie doesn't know about it yet, but uh, Cassidy is definitely freaked out. And uh, that will obviously uh, come up to something much, much later. Or not much, much later, but, but sooner than later. Well, a good, like, um, 12 I guess issues? it's almost 20 issues, actually. Twenty, Yeah, 20 issues. Yeah, it's like a good almost two years. There is a slow build. To Carnage. To, to Carnage, a very, very slow build. Because they hint it throughout the, the Round Robin Epic Collection as well. And then the issues that immediately follow that one are the Carnage ones. So that's, yeah, that's a good almost two years. Yeah, this is a again a, a fun issue because you have the, the Rhino you have, in a new costume. Uh, you have Rhino fighting against both Spider-Man and Cardiac, and at the end of the issue, you have was it Justin Hammer decides he's going to hire Spider-Man, put him on the payroll to help stop um, this Cardiac uh, mystery man. And I, I kind of like that, and uh, where they go with it kind of makes sense in the next issue as well. But it's you know it's again nice fun action. You know you're starting up a new storyline with you know who is this Cardiac character? Uh, is he friend or foe? You know what is he really? you know about and uh i like the kind of the mystery uh as uh as we introduced to this new character i really like cardiac i think he's uh he's an interesting character because he is a hero he wants to do the right thing and he and, and spider-man have a heart to heart in this issue and um spider-man kind of explains his his case and then at, at the end cardiac or i guess in the sometime in the middle here cardiac takes what spider-man says but puts his own little twist on it so, so that it makes it seem like you know destroying a building is actually an okay thing to do even spider-man said it's okay and i, I thought that was it was interesting because he kind of hears what he wants to hear in order to um you know give himself permission to do the things he wants to do mm. next issue sure 345 venom lives i love that they've put venom on the cover here so that they can mm -hmm. sell the book because Boomerang is probably not going to sell as many issues as Venom. <laughs> so they stick him on the cover, even though True. he only appears in like one panel at the end here. If they only knew the historical importance of this because you have Mark Bagley on the book. It's true. It's true. Mark Bagley's first Spider-Man. He had been on New Warriors before this, mm -hmm. and uh, this is his first Spider-Man. It's kind of a fill-in. Um, now, I don't know why. I can't remember... If Eric Larson said why he had to get a fill-in for this issue, I can't remember. But it's like, this is the only fill-in, I think, in Eric Larson's run. I think you're right. And, uh, you know, and it's interesting because even it's a fill-in artist, but, I mean, the storyline is a direct, you know, carryover from what where we were going last issue. Yeah. So, you know, it's still kind of mid-arc. So it is interesting that Larson would have to take time off. Um, but, you know, people are allowed to, you know, sometimes need to fill in. Um, right. But, I mean, I don't think you could get luckier with a fill-in artist. Like, Bagley is so good. He still comes so fully realized as to, you know, his interpretation of the characters. Everyone looks great. That scene of uh, Eddie Brock escaping, again, is reprinted everywhere. And it looks it great. Yep. Mark Bagley comes on the book fully realized, knowing exactly his interpretations of the characters. Uh, nothing kind of looks off. It doesn't look like he has any real growing pains, except he hasn't quite figured out how to draw Venom yet. Uh, or at least it's not the Venom we expect from, from Bagley yet. So the last page of the issue, we have uh, finally, first of all, you have that um, silhouette shot of Eddie Brock and the symbiote. And the symbiote's all like kind of crazy tendrils everywhere. That is it. very much classic Mark Bagley version yeah. of Venom. But then when you actually have that full shot of him as Venom, you don't have that anymore, and he doesn't quite have the, the tongue that he'll give him later, or kind of the, the, the you know kind of the look of his face. So it doesn't doesn't quite look right as a Mark Bagley Venom. It still looks like a good Venom, but um, it's not yeah. quite what we come to expect later. Well, I think he's definitely pulling reference from Todd McFarlane's Venom, 
and it mm. isn't until the next issue where we get the long tongue venom with lots of drool that's what eric larson kind of adds so yeah he's definitely pulling uh, mcfarland reference here but as far as this issue goes um hammer this is the one where hammer uses silver sable to yeah. hire spider-man to stop cardiac and then hires the boomerang to take care of spider-man so it's kind of this <laughs> this uh spider-man's caught in the middle of a couple of different things um it's really interesting to to think about cardiac here because they give us a lot of hints to, to, to just further the mystery of who he is without giving us any sort of answers um, yeah. I think he mentions that he is a friend of Stark, Tony Stark, and he gets a lot of his gear from Stark, but we don't know anything more than that. We don't we see him like pulling at this microchip in his palm, but we don't know anything more than that. Like he is a complete mystery. They don't give us any answers. And I'm okay with that. Yeah. For sure. Cuz it cuz it works. Like not every villain has to have everything kind of laid out for you right away and i, I kind of like seeing more about the character and slowly kind of having uh more intimations of exactly what's behind him and and his motivations and it's cool and again i like using boomerang here it's a very justin hammer thing to do um and and again considering boomerangs you know has not i'm gonna say rise to prominence but i mean he was the lead in superior foes of spider-man he's going to be in nick spencer's uh, new spider-man in some way because he's living with peter parker as his roommate um, he's definitely a character to kind of watch, and this is kind of nice to go back and you know see an earlier appearance of the character. And again, Mark Bailey really draws the hell out of him. Yeah. Um, and I mean, no offense to Larson, but I almost think this is my favorite art in the book. Just, but that part of that's because I'm such a Bailey fanboy that uh, <laughs> I have to admit that going in that I love Bailey's artwork. He's my Spider-Man artist. He's you know when I close my eyes, that's the Spider-Man I see, not his Ultimate Spider-Man. I see his Amazing Spider-Man. So being able to see it here, even the earliest versions of it. It still looks so good. Oh, and it only gets better. Oh, yeah. So, want to do 346? Let's do it. Uh, v is for Vile, Vengeance, and Venom. So, we got the, the big return, the proper return of Venom to the book for a whole new, uh, you know, crazy storyline. Um, and that first full shot of Venom is so crazy and so over the top, but, you know, it definitely strikes an image. It does. It's really great. In fact, like, yeah, just how big his, his face goes and with the, with, the, with the tongue and everything, like, this is, you know, th this is what Venom that people think of. And what I really like about this interpretation is how in later versions, people kind of give him very straight teeth, but you have Eric Larson giving him very jagged teeth. And it, it makes the whole appearance look that much more formidable and, and very intimidating. Yeah. So I'm going to play a clip here of Eric Larson talking about his interpretation of Venom. That's another one of those things where um, it, it was just me trying to top the guy who did it before me, you yeah. know, <laughs> and, and it's, and it kind of, that's how a lot of this stuff transforms is that the, the last, you'll be looking at the last guy and go, okay, well, how do I take this to the next step from here? And then how do, and then the next guy's going, all right, I got it. I got it. It's been handed to me now. Time for me to make that move. Yeah. <laughs> well, I can just see is like, and uh, more teeth and uh, longer tongue. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is that, that I thought Todd was giving him a tongue now because there was a trade paperback that collected a bunch of Todd's Spider-Man stories. But I'd, I'd had all Spider all, all of Todd's Spider-Man comics, so I didn't need to buy this trade. But on the cover, Venom had his mouth open and you could see his tongue. So I was like, oh, Todd's giving him a tongue now. But I didn't <laughs> buy it. I didn't buy it, so I didn't bring it home. 
I just had had in my the back of my head was Todd's drawing him a tongue now. I got to make him give him an even bigger, crazier tongue. That's awesome. And so I always thought, well, Todd's the guy who introduced his tongue. And it wasn't until years later that I saw that that trade paperback again, where I was like, no, he just had his mouth open, and you could see that there was a dot of red in there. (laughs) He wasn't giving him a tongue at all. He didn't do anything with it. It was just that it existed in his mouth. That's so funny. (laughs) And for years, I've been crediting Todd as, oh, no, no, I I got that from the McFarland cover. Little did I know, it's just my terrible memory. In this issue, we also have um, you know, Eddie Brock accidentally killing someone, um, and the idea that you know he's really sorry about it and he didn't mean to do it, um, and that's kind of interesting to see. Again, they've been pushing this idea that you know he doesn't want to hurt innocent people; he just wants to hurt Spider-Man. And again, we're furthering that idea here. We also have Peter trying to kind of uh, push people away so that he can protect them from when Venom shows up, which he does um, very quickly. The, this whole issue is a big chase, and uh, it, it leads up to the, the 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 end where Spider-Man it tries to catch Venom, but ends up getting caught in his own trap. And I really like the f- the fact they really play on this that Venom doesn't trigger Spider-Man's spider sense, and mm-hmm. that's um, I don't know how often they use that technique or that little trick these days when writing Venom. Uh, but they they use that a lot here, and, and to great effect. I think it makes Venom just that much more of a menacing character. Like he's a character that can actually sneak up on a guy that senses danger. So that it, that's pretty. That'd be pretty frightening, I think, for Spider-Man. For sure, and they, and they definitely play up. You know, the feeling of, of of showing everything that his powers, that Venom's powers can do. How much he can screw with Spider-Man, especially when you don't have Spider Sense. Uh, that's how he's able to kind of lure him into the trap at the end. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's very, it's a, it's a tense issue. You definitely feel a sense of threat. Um, you feel like, like, you know, Venom can kind of do whatever he wants to Spider-Man, and Spider-Man may not be able to stop him. Uh, you definitely get shades of this particular issue in um, in Venom's first full appearance in the animated series. It definitely had that kind of vibe where he was just kind of showing up, hitting them, and then disappearing, and then the kind of messing with Spider-Man. And you definitely have that sense here. Yeah, you do. That's a good point. I didn't realize that, but yeah. Okay, so before we move on to the next issue, I just want to make um, a note. Go to the very first page of this issue. It's on, um, what is it, page 365 of this collection. Yep. I like how you uh, you get kind of a setup, and then you turn the page, and bang, there's a big giant venom right there. It's like you, you turn the page, and there's a big surprise. Um, yeah. you, you're just as surprised as the guy who's staring at the computer screen on the first page. Um, That's very true. So now go to, uh, and this is just um, a sad fact about the collection. They ruin the surprise. They do that. He does the same thing. Um, David Michelini does the same thing here, setting up Spider-Man's Lost on the Beach. But you're supposed yes, you're to right. turn the page to reveal, bang, huge venom. And it's a shock, it's a surprise, but because it's on the same page in this collection, it's not as effective. Uh, that's true. And it, it's interesting, because even the angle of his mouth kind of being crazy and disjointed is kind of the same. Yeah, it's. I think or it's sim- supposed or at least to, similar. I think it's supposed to be a little bit similar, but I, I, the first page is supposed to be on the right, because the the inside cover always had an advertisement on it. So, mm-hmm. But we don't have the ads in here, so they just kind of throw them here, and those sort of techniques for effect are lost when you're reprinting like this. 
unfortunately. No, 347 is extremely fast-paced, full of action. Oh, it's yeah. probably the most action-intensive in some ways, although there's tons of action throughout all these issues. Um, you do have some characterization. You have uh, Felicia and Flash have finally having some cracks in the relationship, but then you know Felicia trying to kind of fix it and trying not to just you know snap at Flash. But really, it's all on-island action, um, and it's really Spider-Man trying to pull out everything he possibly can uh, as a way of fighting Venom and Venom using every trick in his arsenal, uh, you know, going camouflage when, um, when they're in the water, uh, using the cool tendrils move. to kind of grab Spider-Man under the, uh, under the, uh, the sand, like all sorts of stuff, which is really cool. And then Spider-Man's way of kind of convincing him, that, uh, Venom that he's dead is actually kind of an inspired way of kind of figuring out a way to take Venom off the board don't just leave him in prison where he's going to escape again, but l- letting Venom be content and thinking that he's killed Spider-Man, but really it's just he's found a, you know, a carefully placed uh, you know, shredded costume on top of a, a pre-existing skeleton. But it's cool. It's, you know, it's, a, it's a way of getting Spider-Man, uh, getting Venom off the board for Spider-Man for a while. Well, again, only about a year in a bit, and they're going to have to go back to that island to get him later. Um, but it's a satisfying way of concluding the threat without it feeling kind of lame and forced the forced part to me felt like uh as soon as eddie thought he was dead he's like you know i'm just gonna stay on this island <laughs> because they had to figure out a way for venom to not accidentally bump into spider-man again because spider-man will be swinging around new york the very next day mm-hmm. um so i found that a little contrived but you know what can you do i don't think you can get out of that very yeah easily. It's a little contrived, sure, but if you really think about it, like the symbiote probably doesn't really need or want anything. All it really wanted was vengeance, and, and you know, at this point, Eddie Brock really has nothing in his life, and we don't. Like, I think at this point, we don't even know that he was ever married. Even I don't think that was a plot point at this point. Right. So I feel like he's just kind of a blank slate of a guy who's just had you know re- revenge on his mind. So is the symbiote, and they're you know this perfect symbiosis that's gone now. They're kind of like you know what, we're happy now. Um, you know, they don't even need creature comforts. They have everything they needed on the island. They have, you know, food, water, and peace. Why not be happy? I mean, not that we've ever thought of Venom as being like the Hulk and just wanting to be left alone, but that's kind of, you know, the interpretation of Michelini, uh, sorry, Michelini just has to go with here, and I'm okay with that. Um, again, it's a little contrived, but, you know, again, there have been worse things that have happened, and this isn't too bad, and again, it achieves a, a satisfying way to keep Venom out of the book for a while um, that doesn't feel forced. These two issues are quite possibly my favorite Venom. It's my favorite Venom story. And it's because I read them as a kid and have very, very fond memories because it was just, it was absolutely wild um, seeing, reading these two when I was, I don't know how old I was, like 11 or 12 or something like that. Um, it was, it's just fantastic. And so I have a, a fond soft spot in my heart for these two issues. So 248, um, uh, sorry, 348, it's um, at last the Avengers and the Amazing Spider-Man under the leadership of the Sandman. Uh, This issue is called Righteous Sand, and a lot has happened with Sandman uh, that wasn't in this issue, because last that we saw him uh, in the Sinister Six story, he was... um, He was a good guy living with a family, but now apparently he's joined the Avengers. Um, I can't remember when when that happens, in which issue he joins the Avengers, but... Yeah, I can't remember exactly. But he is, and so in this one, Sandman has to prove his worth as an Avenger by stopping... He he comes across hijackers that are hijacking nuclear material, and so he goes and tries to stop them, and he ends up um, butting off more than he can chew, and the Avengers get called in, and 
Captain America is about to tell him to be more careful, but he, Sandman thinks he's going to, you know, fire him. So he just takes off. And I think this is kind of something Sandman does often is he kind of shoots himself in the foot. He, he ruins a good thing for himself. And we see that. Happen yeah. You know, I'll be honest though. I don't like how Michelani writes Venom. Uh, sorry, not Venom. Uh, Sandman here. It doesn't feel accurate to the version of the character that we've been getting up until this point. Um, everything that you know, DeFalco had done some great jobs with Sandman, really kind of setting him up and and doing different things with him and making him, um, you know, kind of reforming him in a way that made sense to the character. And I felt this was just kind of made him look dumber than he needed to. Um, so I didn't really love it. Um, and again if you're just reading this issue and you haven't read Avengers, it's super confusing because, you know, all the stuff has happened, but you're like, wait, what, what has happened with Sandman? Like, including you know, everyone like, knows, you know, yeah, everyone knows who he is. And the guy on the streets like, Hey, aren't you an, an Avenger? You should help these guys. So yeah, it's a, it's a very star. Uh, it's a very drastic change to the, the one at the beginning of this book. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. I, I feel like in a lot of ways that I would say that this is, um, this this is the most forgettable issue in the entire collection. I mean, like this 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 feels like a true fill in issue. Like we talked before about how Mark Bagley was the you know a gas penciler in one issue, and technically it's a fill in artistically, but at least the storyline continues apace and nothing's really changed. Uh, it's the story you would have gotten whether it was Bagley or Larson. Whereas this feels like an actual fill in story. Um, nothing of you know consequence really happens. Um, you know, it's just kind of it feels very forgettable um you know spider-man doesn't even feel like the main character in his own book it feels more of a salmon story than spider-man and not even a great salmon story um the avengers are kind of kind of oddly positioned even the way you know cap just kind of lets salmon quit without even going after him like it just feels very very contrived the characters don't quite feel themselves i would say even the art looks like maybe he's taking some shorter cuts as well it's not quite as polished and like there's no real explanation on some of these characters like you have quasar and a a costume that a lot of people won't even remember him in you got (laughs) cersei as part of the avengers like it's kind of a weird you know kind of forgettable avengers squad as well Um, so this issue i would say is the one you could skip well don't skip any of them it's still good it's nice to see the Avengers show up, you know. Eric Larson does some pretty good Avengers. Now, this one, I can't remember if it's this issue or the next one. I'll have to re-listen to my interview with Eric Larson, but there's a clip I want to play in here, um, and it either relates to this issue or the next one. It was the thing where, where the, the editor at that point was really concerned about me making the deadline on that. So the issue before... I had to turn around super fast in order to, in order for me to be able to even do the issue because they were like, "Well, we got to give you a fill-in on on two forty-nine so that you can do this double-sized or what three forty-nine so you can do this double-sized three fifty. And I was like, "Oh man, I hate to end my run with a fill-in and then my last issue." So yeah, let me let me do the issue before, but I'll, I'll do it. Fast. And so I did that issue in eight days. Wow. Holy cow. Oh, <laughs> man, eight days. <laughs> and then the double size one took me uh, took me a little longer than a month. But it wow. was like, you know, five five weeks maybe. So the next issue is called Man of Steel. I love this pun because it's steel S T E A L, <laughs> not steel like Superman. Um, but this one's the return of the cat burglar. Or the sorry, the black fox. He's called the cat on the yeah, cartoon. That's why a, I always mix that up. 
Um, yes, you're for, you are forgiven. They yeah they they did change him there, but uh, yeah no this is a, a classic Friends and Defalco character. Yes, the Black Fox, and so he he's played up for laughs a lot of the time here. Um, he he's an expert thief. He's stolen, but however he's stolen something that belongs to Doctor Doom, and that is not a good thing. Yeah, it's just a, a kind of a fun a fun romp through the park as Spider Man tries to track down the the Black Fox. Yeah, it, it, again, it's a, it's a simple issue. It's kind of fun because this is a character we've seen before, kind of doing the same shenanigans. But we don't really know what the you know the, who who's really after them. Like you kind of have a sense with the cover, but you may not know exactly who it is. And then that last page of Doctor Doom being there is really cool, and you're kind of like, oh shit, uh, Black Box has really stepped in at this time. Yeah, and uh, how how is Spider Man going to fight Doctor Doom? And that's really cool. Um, and actually, three fifty, I think was one of the first amazing Spider-Man issues. Like I didn't get it off the stands or anything. I think I got it a couple of years, maybe a year or two later, but I remember it was one of the first kind of issues I started uh, finding here and there. Maybe a friend of mine had it or something, but uh, I've always loved it. It's such a great art. Um, you know, it's, it's Larson's, I guess it's what it's, it's his last issue on amazing, right? It's his last issue on amazing. That's right. And it's, you know, it's a great kind of I, the first few pages of, you know, the black box trying to escape doc, doc doom being there, Spider-Man trying to stop Doc. Doctor Doom. Uh, again, you, it's got some great damage Spider-Man action um, that I really love, and I love some of the you know kind of '90s coloring that we have here. Um, some of the shading they would do on the, on Spider-Man as like he's getting electrocuted and being blasted off. Yeah, uh, when you don't see the webs on his uh, costume to give the highlights. Yeah, I just I always love that, and again, um, I love the the consistency because Larson does try to have con- some consistency on where the the uh, Spider-Man costume has been damaged. Um, there's that shot on on 465 on the top of the page when you have Doom just kind of uh, ha- like not in silhouette, but you can't see his masked face, and he's just walking through this carnage. And Spider-Man is you know really wrecked, and you know the alarms are going off, and he doesn't even know what's going on. Um, and then again, he tries to escape, and then he just you know, everything's being electrocuted. He's getting these, you know, all this gym equipment thrown at him. Like you really have Spider-Man being thrown through the rigor, and it looks fantastic. Yeah, it really does. There's so much here, and um, and we also get um, a, a touching scene with Uncle Ben. He makes an appearance, and uh, yes, he does. This is uh, this he, is back in the day when um, we didn't have. Uh, collected editions and reprints weren't readily available, so we get a little recap of his origin story too, which often happens in these double size issues. But it's cool oh, to sure. see Eric sure. Larson drawing these famous scenes. Well, what I what I especially appreciate is on four seventy two that first shot of Uncle Ben. Yeah, like the way he makes the face with so little detail. If that's a Ditko. That's a Ditko face. Absolutely like, Ditko. Yep, straight out of like Amazing a, Fantasy. Exactly, and then like the next page, so the next panel. Now he starts to look like a Larson character. But that first shot, you're like, "There's no mistaking who it is," because yep. everyone knows that shot of Dicko's Uncle Ben. Yep, absolutely. Just looks, it's fantastic. And I remember that as a kid, being like, "Is he having like a concussion?" Yes, he, yes, he has. <laughs> yeah. And he like tries to introduce people to his uncle. Yeah, I loved it. It was, uh, it was so funny. It's a good moment, and it's nice to uh, to have Peter interacting with his uncle like that because he does that on a number of different occasions the only thing that kind of drags this down a little is that Michelini does kind of steer into the more stereotypical what we get later from MJ always kind of being against Peter being Spider-Man and not being as uh, kind of understanding and supportive which I think better person better writers who have written MJ have her being more of a an active you know 
partner with Peter and understanding what he has to do and not just kind of harping on him all the time about, you know, what kind of damage he goes through. And here it feels a lot more of the standard kind of, you know, don't ask me to understand suicide, like very, like very heavy handed, just kind of pushing them apart for no real reason, but to just, you know, add some, I don't even know, like conflicts where I don't think it needed to exist. Yeah, I, I can see that. I think, uh, you have to do something with Mary Jane, otherwise she just kind of sits there. And so I think bringing up this sort of conflict, is, it, it happens every once in a while. It kind of needs to, I think. Mm-hmm. Depends on how you resolve it. I do. Yeah, no, and again, the, I mean, the, the real, you're not reading the issue for that. You're reading the issue for, you know, Spider-Man and Black Fox in action together, you know, trying to, you know, uh, set things right. And then uh, Doom kind of shows up. I love how he's like back lackeys. I have no quarrel with you. Like he's just, <laughs> just blasting people away. And uh, it's kind of, it, 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 again, it, it's cool seeing doom here and he's not directly fighting Spider-Man now, but you know, he's, he's very much an intimidating force. He gets back what he wants and then he destroys the diamond that uh, black box has been looking for the entire time. And even that one, that shot of uh, the absolute horror on black Fox's face as it gets destroyed is, is priceless. There's the one scene where uh, Dr. Doom, is he's given Peter Parker a 24-hour ultimatum to deliver the, the gem. And at one point, he's just standing in his tower, staring out the window, counting down the seconds, and a lackey comes in and tries to disturb him, but then he goes away. I, I feel like Dr. Doom is so singular-focused. Like, he's, he can only do one thing at a time. And so I can just imagine him standing there at that window for the full 24 hours, counting down every second because he's so, he's just invested his his whole self into this one thing that he can't possibly think of doing anything else. So just standing there for 24 hours at the the window. And then as a treat, issue 350 also had the Eric Larson portfolio at the end, which was a a nice uh, addition and it looks great in this collection as well. You have, uh, of, uh, Spider-Man and MJ, which is actually um, inked by Jazzy John Romita, so that's uh, a special kind of piece of artwork there. Then you have Spider-Man and the FF, inked by Sinnott, uh, which looks pretty good as well. Uh, probably my favorite of the pinups, though, is Spider-Man and Daredevil, uh, inked by Williamson. It looks so good. You would choose that one, being a Daredevil it's, fan. Yeah, well, I, I guess so. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it just it has so much going on there. And then a nice representation of the of um, the run that Eric Larson just had, inked by Sal Buscema. You have Solo, Captain Universe, and you have uh, Cardiac all in one shot. I'm actually surprised it's inked by Sal because Sal usually has such a heavier touch, and it doesn't really come across here. Yeah, but it doesn't. It looks doesn't look like totally like Eric either. Uh, Cardiac looks very Larson. Uh, the other two, well, not guess, as much. I guess Solo kind of does in his face as well. It's a, and it's an Eric Larson pose. Yeah, mm-hmm. it still comes through. And then the best one is is the last one because it's uh, half Eric Larson, half McFarlane, and it looks awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really does. Like that's a special treat, just being able to see that. And like it's, it, I, like even as a kid, I was like, that's awesome, and it still looks that way. Yeah, it really does. Yeah, all of these, it's it's a just a cool conclusion to Eric's run to have him working with some of the biggest names in the history of Marvel comics. And then the, the bonus stuff is really cool. We get a couple of different articles taken from different um, magazines or re- or trade paperback collections, some mm-hmm. other pinups from yeah. various different places, trading cards, which are always cool. Ugh. They're mostly drawn by Eric Larson too, I think. Yep. Yeah, that's fine. I, I don't, I don't like the Marvel illustrated, the swimsuit issue as centerfold pinup. It no. <laughs> looks, uh, I, I'm just not a fan of 
I'm not a huge fan of Jesco, but especially this. Um, the pinup by Norm Breifogel is cool, just because I can't think of much Norm Breifogel artwork that's ever been at Marvel. Um, or at least he, I feel like he's usually a DC guy in my head, so it's kind yeah. of cool to see a pinup by him. Um, the pinup by Gamble looks pretty cool, though. That's uh, a cool um, one, yeah. Although, yeah, it's pretty cool. Although interesting that you have a Green Goblin there because obviously he's not a member of the Sinister Six. Oh yeah. Um, did he not get the memo? Did he not get the memo that's supposed to be? Uh, well, not even supposed to be. Hobgoblin no, because Craven's you have Craven there. Here, yeah. So like it's just a, so you just kind of have Electro. classic villains. Yeah. So you have the Sinister Five and. <laughs> And then you also have, um, you know, Green Goblin. It's 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 gorgeous. Don't get me wrong, but it's just an interesting choice. And then yeah, you have these uh, trading cards. And uh, I love the um, what is it? The Marvel Life ninety two collection. That's the one I remember the most. Um, I didn't really have a lot of the ninety ones, but the ninety two was the one I think I had the most of at the time. So I love seeing those reprinted here. And then we have uh, some nice uh, cover art from the uh, premier hard class hard covers uh, that we've had over the last few years. And then a cover from the Vengeance of Venom trade paperback. Yeah. And that brings us to the end of this collection. This was a good book. I, I thoroughly enjoyed this all the way through. What are your thoughts? I think it's a lot of fun. Um, you know, Michelani has a, a good sense of what he wants to do. I would say it's probably more plot heavy than, uh, you know, necessarily deep characterization. Um, you know, but that the, you know, some characters still get some good characterization. And, you know, there is some character development, but I don't think that was the focus here. I think the again, this is, you know, a good, some good plot heavy issues. Uh, of just good Spider-Man fun and action. Um, Eric Larson knew how to draw Spider-Man in action with his villains, and you had Michelani was like, I can write to that. Um, you know, the Sinister Six kind of storyline, which is obviously the centerpiece here, it looks great. It reads reads well. Um, you know, it's got good action. It moves briskly. Um, of the various epic collections for Spider-Man, it's probably the fastest moving um, in terms of really having a good sense of how to move things forward quickly. And again, yeah. part of that's just the time period because now you have bigger splash pages, so issues are faster to read as opposed to earlier when you had, you know, uh, more dense grids. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I think the only misstep here is the Spirits of Earth graphic novel that we were not fans of. It's at the beginning. Um, but, I mean, it looked good. <laughs> it did look great, yep. that's for sure. So that brings us to the end of this episode. But, uh, Adam, when when are you going to be on the show next? Next time I'm on the show, we're actually going to be talking about Amazing Spider-Man Round Robin. Uh, so it's the volume that picks up immediately after this one and is most notice notable for bringing uh, Mark Bagley regularly onto the book. Um, mm -hmm. So it's really exciting for that. Unfortunately, uh, when we do get to that volume, we'll start with a lot of annuals to kind of start it off, which are not as good. But it just <laughs> makes you... Makes you, makes you really ready for Mark Bagley. I and mean, when he when he comes on, he really hits you with, you know, all, all he's got. And so you just got a taste of what Mark Bagley on 90 Spot was going to be in this volume. But the next one is when he really settles in and starts to make, make it his own. It's going to be really exciting. Yeah, I agree. I'm looking forward to it a lot. Well, thanks for being on the show, Adam. Do it. Can't wait to be on the next time. <laughs>